Hello again, brothers and sisters. Welcome to my fourth podcast. On this episode, I'll tell you about the time I had a standoff with one of my heroes whilst filming for Top of the Pops. In fact, we ended up slapping each other. Our local newspaper did a piece once on the spiral carpets that left me and the band looking a bit naff, really. And how me and my mates taught one of the greatest songwriters of all time how to play Subutio. I'll also tell you about what inspired me to write the song, Saturn Five, And I've got a bit of news about the uh, Boonow soul as well. I'd like to share that with you in a bit. And as always, I'll be closing this episode with a track from a new unsigned artist. On this podcast, it's the turn of a Manchester singer-songwriter called Ryan Jarvis. Next week, something extra special on Storytime with Boone. Once a month, I'm going to be recording my podcast live at Red's True Barbecue in Manchester with a special guest. So next week, Mike Legend Bez from Happy Mondays, the 24-hour party person, will be in conversation with me at Red's, and I'll give you all the details towards the end of this episode on how you can be at that event. But that'll be the next podcast with me and Bez in conversation. Don't forget to check out the Spotify playlist, which comes with every episode. On there you'll find some of the songs I'm talking about and a few others, uh, usually about a dozen or so songs to accompany each episode of Storytime with Boone. My podcasts are brought to you by Distorted Productions and big thanks again to those lovely people at Red's True Barbecue in Manchester for helping us to get this together. Okay, let's do it. Storytime with Boone with Red's True Barbecue. One of the most influential British musicians of all time has got to be Marky Smith out of the fall, a brilliant Manchester band. Over the last four decades, they've released something like 31 albums, believe it or not. And throughout the 1980s, the fall had uh, a clutch of hit singles, which included Victoria, Hit the North, uh, Ghost in My House. And it's about 40 years or so now since Smith started the fall. And they're well known for having constant lineup changes. He falls out with a lot of people. So, so far, the fall have had about 66 different members. I think that's the figure. And a third of them have been in the fall for less than a year. So that sort of gives you an idea what it's like working with Mark. And Mark's obviously the only constant member of the fall it's his band he once said if it's just me and your granny playing bongos then that's the fall right now the only time that mark got to appear on the iconic tv music show top of the pops was courtesy of the inspiral carpets in late 93 we asked mark to do some guest vocals on a couple of our tracks uh, one of the tracks was saturn 5 which became a hit record but the version with mark remained on a shelf the other one was a track from our album that we were working on. The album was Devil Hopping, and the track was called I Want You. Now, the album version just had a, a vocal from our singer at the time, Tom Ingler. He did the lead vocal on it. And we decided to do an alternative version with Mark Smith doing a, a, a different a lead vocal, you know, an alternative lead vocal. And it turned out that good. We decided to release it as a single. We, we recorded it at Par Street Studios in Liverpool one Friday night. Mark had come over from Manchester on this Friday night. We didn't know he was coming in a taxi, we thought he was going to get a lift, and he just turns up, turns up about two hours late, walks into the studio, uh, Clint, have you got 50 quid for a taxi, please? That was like the equivalent of about 300 quid back then, we were shocked, you know what I mean, he'd come all that way to the taxi. Anyway, so on the opening line of the song, when he started the vocal take, he managed to completely destroy the sound engineer's prized antique vintage valve microphone, right? it was worth about four grand. And he started shouting into it really loud and he smacked it with his fist and it ended up on the floor. Completely killed it. But his performance was, was, was great, but it was a bit erratic. So he was like coming in and, and stopping and starting in the wrong places. But we got some amazing stuff out of him in the can, as you say. And when we listened back to it after he'd left, and I suggested we edit it so it sounds like a duet between Tom and Mark. And that's what we did after several hours of cutting and pasting. 
the final version was ready and it sounded amazing and we spent several memorable days after that with Mark over the next few weeks like filming a video for it, doing a photo shoot, a few press interviews and all, all the kind of stuff that you have to do you know, to promote a record and all full of the kind of unpredictability and chaos which a true genius like Mark E. Smith brings with him <laughs> to the party. If you know him, you know exactly what I'm on about. And we got asked by the producers at the Top of the Pops to bring Mark along to perform the single and we were like saying, do you think that's a good idea? You, you know, knowing that a day at the top of the pops back then, it meant several hours of like run throughs and rehearsals and setting lights up and focusing cameras and all that kind of business. All activities that are carried out to a strict timetable and with military precision, really. We'd like saying, that. do you really want us to bring Mark Smith down here? Shouldn't we just do the album version? We're just Tom singing it. And they're like, that. no, bring Mark, bring Mark. It'll be amazing TV. So we brought him down to London and picked him up in a Ford Transit minibus one night from his local pub. Now, that was a trip, the journey down there. But within minutes of getting to the BBC studios, Mark was causing absolute carnage. He was upsetting the cameramen. The same, why is he standing in a different spot every run through this bloke here? Because he's Mark Smith. Why is he singing different words every time? Because he's Mark Smith. Why is he messing with a guitar amplifier? Because he's fucking Mark Smith. That's what he does, he's Mark Smith. And eventually... Our plugger and Top of the Pops producer took me through a fire escape into an alleyway behind the studio and they started begging me to send Mark home. They said, we don't want him on the show. They couldn't handle his spontaneity and his uh, cantankerousness. And I said, yeah, but that's why he's a legend. That's why everyone loves him. That's what makes him brilliant. Anyway, I explained that we'd only do the performance with Mark. If he went home, we are going home. And we did it. And it was truly one of the most magical moments in the history of Top of the Pops. Marky e. Smith on Top of the Pops. You still see it now on uh, what they call it, the reruns, Top of the Pops 2. They still show that in Sparrow Carpets featuring Marky e. Smith. But funny thing happened on the way down to the studio from the, the dressing room. We're going down this staircase towards the studio. We're just like five minutes before we were due to perform it. And for some reason, Mark and me got into an heated exchange about something and nothing. I don't know what it was, but bearing in mind, this guy's one of my all-time musical heroes and absolute, he's an icon. He's up there with Elvis in my book, believe it or not. And we ended up on the stairs, slapping each other across the face. And I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it was happening. And then he stubbed his cigarette out on my favourite shirt. I had this denim shirt with a, a, a big Harley Davidson embroidered on the front of it. Beautiful thing he was. And he put a big cigarette burn right in the middle of the engine. So I slapped him again. He slapped me again. It went on anyway. So eventually the lads in the band were saying, come on, lads, it's time to go on now. We're on in five minutes. So we, when, when the slapping stopped, we headed for the studio and we pulled off one of our finest moments, without a doubt. And as the opening line of the song says so accurately, no one ever said it was going to be easy. Have you ever been had by the press? You know what I mean? Like misrepresented. I have loads of times. And I'll tell you about one of the best ones. It's classic. The Inspiral Carpets had the pleasure of being on the same record label between 1990 and 94. As such great bands as Depeche Mode and Erasure, Moby, um, Einstein's Ender Neubarten. 
<laughs> you know, the band that made music with angle grinders and electric source. And at the time, Depeche and Erasure were two of the biggest bands in the UK. And in Depeche's case, they were one of the biggest bands in the world. In 1992, Erasure was so popular, they sold out a run of nights at the Apollo Theatre in Manchester. And I don't know if it's 21 or 12, it was one or the other, but either way, 12 nights, 3,000 capacity venue, that's how big Erasure were at the time. And I think it was the Phantasmagoria tour that they did. And it was a massive news story, you know, Erasure and the complete entourage just in Manchester for a couple of weeks like this. And during Erasure's residency in the city, the Manchester City Art Gallery launched an exhibition called Queer, and it was like between May and June of 92. And it was the work of Derek Jarman, who happened to be a, a very close friend of Erasure, and he had very strong links with our record label, Mute. As well as Derek Jarman's brilliant work as an artist and filmmaker, he was famous for his outspoken views on homosexuality and his relentless fight for gay rights. Now, we were invited by Mute to go to the art exhibition launch. So we we're thinking, cool, we love art, love Derek Jarman, love Erasure, let's do it. Erasure are coming too because they're doing a gig at the Apollo the same night. So right after the Apollo gig, they were going to come over to this exhibition as well. And we thought it'd be nice to catch up with them again. You know, our label mates that. So we went along, got in no problem. Bit of a red carpet thing going on and all that. Picture for local paper in Spiral stood there looking smart and that <laughs> in front of a really nice piece of art. And the art was amazing. Obviously it was Derek Jarman. We got free drinks, got some sausage rolls and volavants, all that shit. No sign of erasure, but we're like, no problem. You know, we've had a good night. We can catch them later. Next night, I get a call from a mate of mine saying, have you sent paper? And I'm like, no, why? What's up? He says, you're in it, mate. You come across as a bit of a loser, to be honest. You and your mates. He says, go and get a copy now and have a look. So I get sent at news agents and big story. Page, page seven or something. It wasn't on front. It was inside somewhere. Picture of us in spirals stood on the red carpet in a line with the headline, they waited in vain. So according to journalists, we'd waited in vain for our label mates or Asia, who didn't turn up. And we're all there, waited in vain. We didn't wait, we, we didn't wait for no fucker. <laughs> we went long to see some cool art, neck some free champers and hang out in a nice art gallery. Waited in vain, my ass. Yeah, this is a good story. Come here. In Spiral Carpets did a recording session once at Conk Studios in Crouch End, London, owned by the legend Ray Davis, so the frontman of the Kinks, one of my favourite bands ever, and one of the most influential songwriters of all time, without a doubt. It was September 1990. Now, Ray Davis wasn't known at the time for hanging around at the studio, so we didn't really expect to meet him. We knew he owned it, but we didn't think we'd get to meet him. At the time, the Kinks hadn't worked together for several years, mainly because of Ray's turbulent and well-documented relationship with his brother Dave, who was the Kinks guitarist. They just didn't always get on. They didn't get on most of the time, full stop. So imagine our excitement then on the first morning of our session at Conk, when a member of staff at the studio let it slip that the Kinks were actually coming in to use Studio 2 to record the, the first music together for two or three years since they'd done anything. And we were buzzing. We were like, it's one of those bands, the Kinks, it's one of those bands that every member of our band 
loves or loved. Most of the press we were getting at the time was actually comparing us to the Kinks as well, saying that our songs were similar to the Kinks in, in the fact that they were kitchen sink dramas, that's the phrase that they used to use quite a lot. And Conk at that time had a, an in-house sound engineer, a young lad called Dave Aringa. We had a good laugh at him, he was a top bloke. And he was responsible actually for a catchphrase which is still extremely popular, not only in the Inspirals camp, but also in the Boone House. Right, and it came about one Sunday afternoon it happened, we were in Conk, Sunday afternoon doing this session. We were recording a single with uh, Commercial Rain, an Inspiral single that came out. And when it came time to eat, Dave, the sound engineer, gets a pen and paper and says, right, what does everybody want to eat? I'll go out and get it. And so we were all sat there thinking about it. Who fancies kebabs now? We had kebabs last night. Anybody from McDonald's? No, no. And we all decided just pizza. We just, just said to Dave, just get loads of pizza, get a variety of pizza. And he, and he looked up from his piece of paper in total disbelief, looks at us and says, pizza on a Sunday? And he couldn't, he couldn't believe it. He was just, he couldn't comprehend the notion of someone wanting to eat pizza on a Sunday because in his world things like that just didn't happen it's mad isn't it and as I said the catchphrase still resonates around boom world on a daily basis and Dave Ringo went on to be become one of the country's most respected successful and sought after record producers working with people like Roger Daltrey he did um, Kylie Minogue one of her big hit records uh, and he did eight of the twelve albums that the Manic Street Preachers have made so he's done alright I wonder if he still doesn't eat pizza on a Sunday. Anyway, so back to our session at Conk. It was very fruitful for us. It lasted about a week. We got loads of stuff done. Unfortunately for the Kinks, their first outing in Donkey's years didn't go that well because on the first morning, it was all over in a matter of minutes. I mean, we saw the commotion, the people arriving and the equipment coming in and all that. But within minutes of starting the session, the Davis brothers, Ray and Dave, had a spectacular fight in the studio which left Ray with a broken tooth and a black eye, I'm not kidding, right? And the album, in fact, the, the Kinks started recording that day, took another two years to finish because they, they couldn't work together in the same room and it didn't come out until 1993, right? And I remember the drummer that day, right, after it all kicked off, they'd not recorded a note of music. I remember the drummer looking totally gutted, sat in reception waiting for, for a car to take him back, back to Limbo Land or whatever. Taxi for Bob. Yeah, yeah, mate, that's me. He'd been he called Bob. And he'd been waiting all this time to get things moving with kinks. He must have been buzzing that day coming into work like that. Took wife. We're back. We're back. The kinks are back. Back in studio, back on road. Put champagne on ice, love. See you in a few weeks. Here we go. Take it away. <laughs> it was back by dinner time. <laughs> <laughs> Poor thing, all them years waiting, he was, he, was, he was so tired of waiting. Anyway, so we saw nothing of the Davis brothers that day, but the next day when Ray appeared, we were playing Subutio on the uh, studio snooker table at Conk, and he, he came over introduced himself to us and told us how much he loved our current single, which is uh, This Is How It Feels Had Just Come Out, or It Been Out. And he asked us what this was, this game we were playing, and we said, it's called Subutio. And... Um, I'm sure he said he'd never heard of it, he'd never seen it. And when I was thinking about it, when it was popular in the 70s, he, he was off being a massive pop star, wasn't he? So that's probably why he wasn't familiar with it. He didn't, you know, he didn't get time for playing Subutu on the floor, you know, on the carpet. Anyway, so I, I took the opportunity right then to ask him how he got his black eye and broken tooth, even though I knew. And he says, he said, I walked into a door, he said, like winking and grinning. I walked into a door. He totally knew, he totally knew 
that we knew what had gone on the day before. What a dude, Ray Davis. So every week on my podcast I like to pick a particular song that I've written over the years and explain to you how it came about. And today I'm going to tell you about the song Saturn V, which became a hit record for the Inspiral Carpets in the early part of 1994. So in the summer of 93, I found myself in Houston, Texas, and decided I should visit a place that I'd, I'd never in my wildest dreams ever think uh, that I'd get a chance to go to. As a kid growing up in the 1960s, like a lot of other British kids, I was totally obsessed with the space race, the Apollo missions, to get man to the moon. It was an incredible time to be alive. It seemed like every every month it seemed like there was another Saturn V space rocket going up from uh, Cape Kennedy in the direction of, well, just up really, into space and eventually the moon towards the end of the 60s, obviously. They just kept going up. And I, I didn't, I didn't realise at the time it was all part of a, a long-term project that had started by John Kennedy, President Kennedy, in a speech he did in May 1961. He says, by the end of this decade, I want an American bloke walking on the moon. Whatever, I can't remember his exact word. I bet the scientists shit themselves, didn't they, when he said that? What did he just say? I don't know, something about getting a man on the moon. Fucking hell, we better get busy, aren't we? You know what I mean? Anyway, so through it all, through every minute of every mission, me and a couple of million other British kids and kids around the world, we'd be glued to our black and white television sets. It was little fuzzy little screens where you couldn't see much, but you, you, you got the feeling that something really very cool was going on. You know, there's a real sense of importance about it all, you know what I mean? And you could see it in your parents as well, you know, like my dad would be saying, Watch these fellas, Clint. They're going to change the world, this lot. Watch these lads. No one's ever done out like this before. Pioneers, they are. Pioneers. Man, you had said exactly the same thing about the Rolling Stones a few years earlier, so... Uh, but I had a telescope beside in my bed on a little tripod, and it was focused constantly on the moon. My mum and dad had bought me this telescope because they knew I had a, a fascination with space. And no one really knew what had happened, you know, when man eventually walked on the moon, I think a lot of us just thought he'd, he'd sink into the moon dust or float off into some sort of eternal lunar orbit, you know, like in, in a David Bowie record or something. And there I am, like nearly 30 years later, standing next to this actual space rocket that I used to watch as a nipper, and I'm shaking. I could hardly talk, I just kept swearing. I'm a grown bloke, and I was just like, fucking hell, look at the size of that. <laughs> But as soon as I stood next to that rocket in 1993, Johnson Space Center, Houston, Texas, I knew right away a song had come from what I was feeling. It was just obvious to me. Because the size of the thing, it's incredible. You know, it's the, it's the entire rocket with all its stages laid out, reassembled, completely restored. And to me, it's as magical as any of the seven wonders of the world. You just stood next to it thinking, I can't believe man made this and man got it up there and put a man on that moon it really it just well it's like I said in the song it really was the greatest sight that I'd ever seen and even now words can't describe it's you know immense beauty and as a symbol of what mankind can achieve it's fairly unbeatable really I think and I started putting pen to paper on the the flight back to Manchester a few days later and by the time I landed in Manchester the song was complete and I knew even before I played it to the, the lads in the band that it had become a single because it had all our trademarks had a quirky hook line and it that really cool 60s garage pop vibe that the Inspirals 
do really well, if I may say so myself. And it was based around the chords from one of my favourite garage records from 1960, from 1966, a song by Question Mark and the Mysterians called 1960 Tears. Basically, the chord sequence is ripped off from that. I don't mind admitting that. And the song also focuses on another really unforgettable image of 1960s America, which was the assassination of John F. Kennedy, President 35. He was the 35th president of the USA. And the line, the lady crying by his side is the most beautiful woman alive, is obviously a reference to Jackie Kennedy, John Kennedy's missus. And our record label, Mute, give us enough of a budget to be able to fly back to Houston to film this video that went with it. And it's a masterpiece, the video. We worked with this um, brilliant filmmaker called John Hillcourt, who helped to get all these really ambitious ideas into the video. John went on to become a very successful movie director. But my idea was at the time to have us, the band, playing five astronauts who, by day, are doing what astronauts do, you know, like walking around the rocket with clipboards and that. Is that not what astronauts do? And by night, we were in a band called the Saturn Five. That's what these characters are in the, in the film that we made. And with the full cooperation of NASA, incredible, with the full cooperation of NASA, we made a classic pop video and talk about dreams coming true, man. You know what I mean? I was just overwhelmed with it all. We filmed some scenes in a classic 1960s Ford Mustang and we spent a couple of hours driving around Houston filming that at night. Absolutely one of the best times of my life, that. And there's a great bit in a TV interview that I did whilst filming the video where... I'm stood there in my astronaut suit talking to um, John, the film producer. And loads of tourists thinking that I was a real astronaut, they come over and start taking photos of me and asking me questions about the moon and that. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Anyway, it's fair to say it was one of the highlights of my life, not just for the songwriter bloke who visited Johnson Space Centre in the summer of 93, but for that little boy in Oldham who spent most of the 1960s glued to a monochrome TV set. This is Saturn V in Spiral Carpets. So that was Saturn Five by the Inspiral Carpets, a song about a space rocket. And right now on the phone, a man who knows a bit about space rockets and a man who rates that as one of his favourite songs ever. Mr. Brian Cox, how are you, dude? I'm brilliant, thank you. And yes, you're right. It was, it was actually, I used it in um, my first documentary on the BBC as well, Horizon, called What on Earth is Wrong with Gravity? Ka-ching. Uh, yeah. <laughs> bit of dash there, bit of spirals. Yeah. We've got stuff in common, haven't we? Because we're both from Oldham, we're both keyboard players. Yeah, uh, you were a keyboard player, and we're both a bit keen on space. Yeah, I was. When I was born in. I was born in Oldham in 1968. There you go. I'm just, I should say we recorded this at quarter past eight in the morning. Absolutely. Um, it's a bit early for a keyboard player. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's unheard of for a drummer, isn't it? <laughs> I know. Well, yeah. well, yeah, it's what we've got to do. We've we've got families to feed, so we get up and get out, don't we? <laughs> Is it true, Brian, that uh, Saturn Five was? One of the first pieces of music, or the first piece of music that you played to your little boy George uh, the day he was born. Yeah, it is because I, 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 I we, we've always loved it. Both myself and Gia, my wife, loved the song, and we, we thought we want to introduce him to Apollo and the and the moon landings, and we want him to we want him to know about it and and 
be as excited as we are. And so we thought that's that's the song, that's what we should play him. So we yeah, we played him Saturn Five and hope it kind of seeped in. Yeah. How did it affect him? Did his bowels start working? <laughs> it's always tricky the first few hours isn't it when you're waiting for the, the, the bot men to start producing stuff yeah. and maybe Saturn 5 helps with stuff like that gets the, yeah. the old ab- that wasn't the plan but it's a good good suggestion yeah and his middle name's Eagle obviously after the uh, the, the vehicle that uh, carried it was on board Saturn 5 and it took the men onto the actual moon didn't it yes the Apollo 11 lander yeah and it's actually there's a line in the song in Saturn 5 an eagle lands and yeah. a planet full of people raises its hands I think a lot of younger fans of the band these days they don't cotton on to some of these little things in there so it's always nice for to explain it you know that bit's about Jackie Kennedy that bit's about John F. Kennedy and all that uh, yeah. so you, you're a bit younger than me you're about um, nine years younger than me Brian do you have any do you have any memories of um, like maybe the later years of the space race as a kid the, the last rockets going up and that the first thing I remember is the Apollo Soyuz link up, which is the, the Russian American docking, the first docking that yeah. they did in 1975. Um, and I remember that. And then I remember the very vividly the first flight of the space shuttle, but that's later, that's 1981. Yeah. It was, yeah. A, it was the start of the next generation. I mean, that, that, you mentioned that link up then. I remember that happening. It was massive news and it was an incredible story. But when you think about it, that's exactly what, but that's where the International Space Station sort of era started, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, the first bit of cooperation. And in 1975, it was a huge step. And I spoke to, uh, or I heard um, Alexei Leonov, who was on that flight, talking about, um, he said that they'd kind of grown up in a Cold War era. And they'd really grown up hearing that America didn't work and the West didn't work. Yeah. So they'd, uh, they, they'd been orbiting the Earth. And they, they thought that when they came over America, then it would be... Uh, dull and, <laughs> and then primitive you know whereas russia would be and the, and the east would be glowing and he said he came up over and california approached him and suddenly this massive glow appeared and it was and he went over at los angeles and saw las vegas and he thought actually there's some this isn't right <laughs> there's something wrong all this stuff we've been told is nonsense incredible like the, rest of the world does work it's a great image. That. You know, it's, it's one of those things where I always think, I always believe that music and space is what brings everybody in the world together, and that's a great example of it. Yeah, I, there's, a, there's a great um, quote from one of the, I think it was the first Saudi Arabian astronaut who flew on the International Space Station, and he said that on the first day uh, I, looked for, I looked for Mecca, and on the second day I looked for Saudi Arabia, and on the third day I saw only the Earth. Amazing. Great, uh, yeah, beautiful line, that, isn't it? Yeah. I'm assuming at some point, Brian, in your uh, career, you've stood next to one of these Saturn V rockets. Oh, yeah, we are. Uh, I, I, I filmed next to the one at um, Kennedy Space Center. Yeah. And we did a, it was in the last series I did, Human Universe. We did a piece to camera um, walking along it. And it was just we were just trying to show the scale of the engineering and at first you know you can't get it in so you can't there's no lens wide enough to fit the thing in <laughs> so we decided that i'd talk about it and we filmed me walking along it and we try and do it in one shot yeah. so it pan out so you get a sense and it took i think it was it was over two minutes that it took to walk from one end of it to the other talking about it but we did it yeah but it's a remarkable thing because you see when you're just walking at normal speed it takes you two minutes to walk down a Saturn V rocket. 
I've done it. I've walked around it, and it's just, I still can't describe the feeling. When I try and talk to people about what it's like, it's just an incredible thing that you've got to see. If you're ever travelling in America, make sure you go and see one of the Saturn V rockets. And given the opportunity, Brian, would you like to have ridden on it, or would you have bottled out? You know, I, I, when you... you you right when you see one and you think this is it's a ridiculous piece of engineering you know the most powerful um aircraft or spacecraft of any type that we built and i, I once saw john young who, who first flew on the space shuttle he did the first test flight of the space shuttle and he said he was asked you know would you do, do you ever feel nervous on this thing and he said well said anyone who uh, doesn't feel a little bit nervous sitting on top you know whatever it is a hundred thousand tons of liquid hydrogen oxygen doesn't understand the problem because <laughs> it is you know it's, so i think you have to be a very special kind of person with a special kind of mentality i mean we saw it with the with the tim peak spacewalk um, yeah just a few weeks ago the, the fact that the american astronauts uh, helmets filled up with water yeah. when he was outside spacewalking and you heard the calmness of those two test pilots because that's what they are yeah and just say well okay so uh you know <laughs> my helmet's filling up with water and uh, i don't know if you saw it but we on um stargazing live on the bbc we covered it and we had chris hadfield who's done several spacewalks and commanded the space station yeah and he said to us he said oh yeah that happened to me um and he, he told this story about how one of his eyes um started stinging and it was like spraying sort of shampoo or vinegar into your eye or something mm. so he was outside spacewalking and one of his eyes went and then it made its way over his nose and the other eye went and he couldn't see anything <laughs> and he, so he said to houston you know i've, I've gone blind <laughs> floating outside the space station and they told him to unopen the valve on his helmet on his space helmet and let the air out and so drop the pressure in the spacesuit so that it would evaporate away and he could see again wow. so he sat there with this valve open hearing his atmosphere venting out into space <laughs> you know and then and eventually it did and, he, and his vision came back and he closed it again and carried on the spacewalk and you think well i don't think i could do that <laughs> you know, that's kind of so i don't know i reckon you that i've got the wrong stuff yeah you know not that you've got the right stuff i'm not sure it's difficult i think there's probably a good gag in there. Houston, I've got a visual problem. You should have tried Specsavers. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, Saturn Five. Does it? You know, it's a heroic song, isn't it? That's the, the which is right. You know, it sounds like these people are absolutely. Yeah. I, th I think it captures it. It is. It's just it, you just get this image of these crazy pioneers going out there for us all, not for themselves, not for their CV. It's to make the world a bit better, isn't it? That's what the, what they do, these people. So Tim Peake included, you know, an absolute hero up there as we speak. You're right. They're idealists. I mean, I've, I've been really lucky. Uh, I've met quite a lot of the Apollo astronauts. And uh, just for Christmas, I got to interview Jim Lovell, who's Apollo 8 and Apollo 13, which are probably the two most dangerous Apollo missions. Yeah. And he said, on Apollo 13, he was saying, you know, the, the thing blew up and they lost all the computers and everything. And uh, so they had to work out. He was describing how they had to work out how to align it because he had to fly it within a two-degree little sort of cone into the atmosphere in order to re-enter. It was too shallow, they'd bounce off into space, or too steep, they'd burn up in the atmosphere. Yeah. And someone worked out that if you look at the shadow on the Earth, which is the line between day and night, so, you know, we're, we're twilight, essentially. Yeah. And it's a, it's got to be at right angles to the sun because the sun shines on the earth. So it gives you a reference. And so someone worked that out. And so they spent a few 
they said, well, I said, well, we'll line it up with that then. So he had to fly this thing manually with an on-off button because he didn't even have a throttle. And he had to just go on-off, on-off with the engine on the lunar module to line it up with this line of the, the day and night line on the Earth. And that's how they flew it in. That's incredible. Go, that's incredible. Brilliant people. Yeah, wow. Talk, talking about astronauts doing uh, amazing things, let's talk about David Bowie. Uh, yeah. The song Space Oddity always comes to mind during a conversation like this. I know that you were a big Bowie fan, Brian. Um, how did he influence you growing up as a, a as a kid and as a musician? How did David Bowie influence you? Oh, hugely. I mean, everyone has their, their favourite album, which is probably the first they got on, on vinyl. And I had I, I, I got Hunky Dory and Ziggy at the same time. Mm-hmm. Roughly, and um, Hunky Dory's always been my favourite for some reason. It's pretty close though, and it was I, for me as a keyboard player. You know, if you, if you listen to Life on Mars, it's ridiculous. It's I think I've seen Rick Waitman talk about it you know, as he played it, and just say that the the chord progressions are a keyboard player's dream. It's an incredible song, and I spent hours just playing along to Life on Mars, and I still can't. I mean, obviously, I still can't play it like Waitman plays it. But the, just the structure of the chords, you realise what a brilliant, intuitive musician Bowie was. I think he started on saxophone, didn't he? That's right, yeah, yeah. But what great lyricist as well. I mean, it's pure poetry. If you listen to Life on Mars, the imagery in there, every, every sentence is a picture postcard, isn't it? It's just, that's what I love about Bowie's writing. Yeah, it's, and, and what it, you know, it's about a lot of things. I mean, it's about growing up in Britain. It's about the absurdity of Britain at that time as well. But it's got this kind of, people call it magical realism, don't they? Where the, the, mm. It just soars off. So it, it can be about the unlimited possibilities of of the universe beyond Earth as well as yeah. being out sailors fighting in the dance hall and all that sort of thing. Yeah. But, I mean, for me, just as a, as a keyboard player, we're just learning those chords. Yeah. Unbelievable. How, how did you feel then three weeks ago or um, in the early part of January 2016 if you're listening to this podcast in the future? How did you hear, Brian, when we heard the news that Boy had passed away? I, I was re- very shocked and, and I was surprised actually how um, sort of how much it affected me because it doesn't usually... I'm not one of those people who, you know, when, when celebrities or musicians die, you know, I, I don't know them. I never met Bowie, to my regret. And uh, so... so yeah, I, I was very surprised what an impact it had, and I think it's because it, you know, that music was has been such a part of my life for so long. Mm-hmm. I don't remember a time when there wasn't Bowie, <laughs> when Bowie music didn't exist, you know. And so I think it was something to do with that, and also the because, as you said, that they're so lyrically and musically interesting and, and deep and complicated you, you grow up with them and they, they they're they're very they're a part of your life in the way that most pop music can't be because you get you, you know although you have songs that you remember from your past most of them don't keep giving you know you don't hear different things every time you listen but i think i you, you grow up with a bowie song you don't only grow up with bowie you, you grow up your life on mars you can grow up with that song yeah absolutely. change you get older so I think it was something to do with with that, really. And it's one of my great regrets that, you know, of all the people that that I wanted to meet, and I've met some of my great heroes, but um, he, that's one that I never managed to just shake his hand. And yeah. I, Did you meet him ever? I never met him. That's something else we've got in common, Brian. We never met Boy. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, sadly. But you know what? It's, it, I'm, I'm gutted that he's gone. And uh, 
the good thing is we've got that the, the incredible back catalogue of records that is left for us all to enjoy for the rest of our lives. So yeah. uh, that's a great thing. And I don't mind admitting as well, the morning that my wife woke me up and told me the news, I sat on the edge of my bed and cried for like half an hour and I've not done that since, apart from family passing away, John Peel had that effect on me. But yeah. uh, celebrities generally, I'm sad when they go, but I don't shed a tear. But for boy, I was absolutely devastated. So yeah. Listen, Brian, thanks for chatting. It's been amazing talking to you. Uh, why don't we finish off with uh, you picking a David Bowie record? We'll put that at the end of this podcast. Yeah, I think. well, I think it has to be because we've talked about it, Life on Mars. And um, just because I know it's a well-known song and, uh, you know, I, part of me wants to say something really obscure, like something from the B-side of Heroes or something. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I think Life on Mars is just such a brilliant song musically and in every way. Um, and it's on my favourite album. So, like on that. Lovely. Brian Cox, thank you, man. You're a legend. Yeah, so are you. So on the last episode of my podcast, I talked about how my wife and I started homeschooling our children uh, nearly three years ago. We don't follow the national curriculum at all. You're not legally obliged to do that if you're homeschooling. So we tend to focus on a lot of things that our boys are interested in. They do a lot of activities. They do a couple of academic subjects as well. The maths and English is ticked off. Got those boxes ticked. But last week, my boys decided they wanted to start a band. Now, since the moment they could walk, I've made a point every two or three days or so of asking, you know, have you thought about playing an instrument yet? Or have you thought about starting a band? And they've never really shown that much interest. I mean, they, they love music. They love listening to the radio. They love CDs in the kitchen and do all that dancing about stuff on YouTube and that. But they've never shown any interest in playing instruments. And I've, we've put a drum kit up in one of the bedrooms. We've got a piano. There's a ukulele. There's various percussion everywhere. Lots of keyboards. But no sign of a band yet. Then recently, my boy Oscar Louis Louis, who's 11, has developed a big thing for the music of Gorillaz. So I'm dead chuffed about that. First, he started listening to the tunes on his iPhone. And then he downloaded an app where you can play keyboard lines. He started playing bass lines along to Gorillaz songs on this app. Christmas Day, he took himself off to the kitchen to listen to the Beatles Revolver album, which he absolutely loved. Uh, and he started talking about Paul McCartney's Offner bass guitar and McCartney's playing style after that. I thought, this is brilliant. This is definitely going the right way now. Next thing I know, he's picked up this old acoustic guitar we've got and he's playing bass lines on it, saying, Dad, I really want to play bass. Now, this is the kid that can do a, a Rubik Cube in under 30 seconds, right? It took him a couple of days to learn it after someone gave him a Rubik Cube last summer. First time he'd seen one. Within two days, he could do it. 30 seconds. Within 24 hours of picking up this acoustic guitar, two weeks ago, he's, he's already playing walking bass lines, ones where you don't need to use a plectrum. And his brother, Hector Nine, he's got the bug too. He says he wants to be the guitarist. So Wednesday last week, 20th of January, 2016, I drove him down to Johnny Roadhouse in Manchester, this legendary music shop they've got. And we bought a full-size bass guitar for Oscar, lead guitar for Hector, bass amp, guitar amp, guitar stands, loop pedal, straps, a lot, plectrums. And baby Cassius Rudy, who's five, 
he was going to be the keyboard player, he reckons. Keyboard player, stroke, percussionist, stroke, dancer. And I'm thinking, this is the start of great things. Well, I'm hoping anyway. I can hear him now upstairs jamming. Sort of starts here, doesn't it? The journey starts here. The education starts here. Okay, it's time for me to get off. Thanks again for downloading this podcast. If you like it, please subscribe if you've not already done so. And if you fancy it, if you've got time, it'd be really good for you to uh, leave some comments on the old iTunes thing. Assuming that the, the nice comments, of course. Next week, something extra special. Once a month, I'm going to be recording my podcast live at Red's True Barbecue in Manchester with a special guest. Next week, Mancunian mega legend, Bez, from Happy Mondays, will be in conversation with me. There'll be a limited number of places for people who want to attend the actual event, 50 places only available. Tickets are free and they will be allocated on a first come, first serve basis. The event's being held on Tuesday, the 2nd of Feb at 6pm, Red's True Barbecue in Albert Square, Manchester. For all the information and to apply for tickets, go to boon.eventbrite.co.uk. That's boon.eventbrite.co.uk. Bright is B-R-I-T-E. Use the password BEZ and you could be sat having a drink and a chat with me and BEZ. Don't worry if you aren't lucky enough to get tickets to the event. The next episode of Storytime with Boon will be that entire conversation with the man himself. As always, I'm going to finish this episode of the podcast with an unsigned artist. His name's Ryan Jarvis. He's a young Manchester-based singer-songwriter He's been on the scene for about a year or so as a solo artist and uh, getting a lot of people excited about his music. And he's just recorded his first single with a full band. There will be another one along soon, apparently. Uh, But for now, this is Ryan Jarvis with Moving Far Too Fast. See you in a bit. Storytime with Boone with Red's True Barbecue. Subscribe now on iTunes.
too fast. She pulls in closer by his shirt, put your hand on me. She whispers, four in the morning under the town hall. Let's go back to yours.